listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Lucy J. Santos to read from and talk with me about her new book, Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium. Before I introduce her, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Lucy Jane Santos is an expert in the history of 20th century leisure, health, and beauty. Lucy has appeared as an occasional contributor on TV and radio, and her historical research has been featured by History Today, BBC History Revealed, The Telegraph, The Scotsman, The Daily Express, and on the BBC Two documentary, Make Up a Glamorous History. Her most recent project is a creative consultant for the documentary, Obsessed with Light, a film that tells the story of the performance artist, Loey Fuller. Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium is Lucy's debut book published by Pegasus in July, and her next book, which is a history of the element uranium, will be published in 2024. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about radium today and to learn some some new things, some more things after reading the book. Did you want to start by maybe reading a little something for us? Um, So I'm just going to set the scene. So this is one of my favorite bits from the book and we're in 1904 here. Um, And I started talking a little bit about displays of radium, but perhaps the most thrilling display of radium designed to both amuse the attendees and to show off the latest in scientific novelties took place at the Technology Club's annual dinner in 1904. The responsibility for arranging this prestigious society event, which was open only to the cream of New York society and MIT alumni, fell to the engineer Lester D. Gardner. The guest of honor was Dr. William Morton, whose star at the time was still riding high after the apparent successes and resultant publicity of his liquid sunshine treatments. By all accounts, during the night, which as a hat tip to Morton was subsequently uh, dubbed the Sunshine Dinner, the committee presented a series of entertainments that astounded the 150 men, and it was limited to men present, and fascinated those who read about it afterwards. But as with everything surrounding radium at this period, it's quite tricky to separate the facts from the fictions regarding what actually took place. All published accounts agree that after the meal, the dining room was darkened and that luminous paint was used to significant effect, but they differ on some key points. Some claimed that there were glow-in-the-dark dancing skeletons and balloons. There was even reports of a glowing human skeleton, which was said to be that of the founder of MIT. More bizarrely, the decorations apparently included two glow-in-the-dark pasteboard chickens fighting over an egg, a visual reference to a spectacular 
um, speculation made earlier that year by Mr. Hobbs, a farmer from Washington, that mixing radium with chicken feed could make radio eggs, which would potentially hard boil themselves. In any case, all of this was merely a prelude to the main event of the night, where those present got to drink a glass of liquid sunshine, a concoction inspired by Dr. Morton's innovative treatment. In a process designed by Gardner, when the guests sat down for dinner, they found a miniature mug containing a capsule of an extract from horse chestnuts, which like quinine, fluoresces blue when exposed to radiation, and a glass of pure sparkling water beside their plates. At a signal from the Toastmaster, the diners were told to add the capsule, which had at least, so they claimed, previously been exposed to radium, into the glass, where it would dissolve and infuse the water with radioactivity. Each drink glowed impressively in the darkened room, which, uh, thanks to the asculum, which made the water fluoresce. A toast was raised, the liquid sunshine was drunk like a shot of whiskey, and the group moved on to singing several rousing songs, the tempo being kept by a conductor who waved a glistening baton tipped with glow-in-the-dark paint. The paint, the glow-in-the-dark paint was also one of my favorite parts uh, of the book because, especially, and we'll get to all those examples, but it it seemed like the most visual one. So I'm glad that you you read that little tidbit for us to get an idea of what people were looking at and thinking about and how magical radium was because we don't think of it that way. No, and that's why I love that bit so much because we definitely don't think of radium as being uh, a, a visual feast or some <laughs> high society treat or something that you'd like to drink <laughs> or any of those things, which is why I find that 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 whole dinner. So it's just one night in February 1904. Um, and I just find it absolutely fascinating because it, it trickles out. So it gets a lot of press coverage. I mean, you kind, you kind of would imagine that it would. You know, people are drinking radium cocktails. Like I said, they're... Uh, dancing glow-in-the-dark skeletons. Uh, this is this is people having fun with radium, having fun with science in a way that um, is kind of odd to us, I think. Um, but yeah, the, it's the glow-in-the-dark paint that really captures the imagination, I think. And that time around 1903 and 1904 is where this public fascination and the kind of boom around the idea of radium Happen. And part of that uh, was because Marie Curie was awarded a doctorate, the first woman to be awarded a doctorate, and then also the Nobel Prize for Physics. Yeah, absolutely. Until 1903, the discovery of radium, which Marie Curie had done in 1898, kind of was most interesting to people. <laughs> um, again, weirdly enough. Um, <laughs> You know, there's, there's, I've read lots of newspapers around that time and people sort of mention it, you know, like women scientist makes discovery of new element. Then you can say this new element is radioactive. And that's just, it's just pure, pure, pure reporting. It doesn't really, really get it. People don't, it doesn't really capture people's imagination until, like you said, Marie Curie, you know, gets a doctorate, gets a Nobel Prize. That's a, you know, that's, that's a thing for a woman, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> at the time. And, Oh, at any time. At any time. Yeah, <laughs> it's still pretty noteworthy. Um, yeah, so then people start, you know, really, it really does capture people's imagination at this, this point. But most specifically, it is the property of the glowing um, that really gets people's, uh, um, oh, just gets their imagination firing. Um, 
Marie Curie and Pierre Curie report that radium salts, which is the product they're working with, glows in the dark. And she, there's interviews with her where she calls them fairy lights. And she says that um, her and Pierre love going into their lab at night and seeing all the different, uh, different uh, jars and, and you know, receptacles that they have their radium salts in and they all glow. And they have people over coming around for parties to show <laughs> off this glow in the dark. Uh, uh, radium salts and again that's something that people just start thinking well this is a property I want to get on board with I can see how I can sell this this effect and people start getting excited from then and let's let's backtrack maybe three four hundred years to <laughs> where we <laughs> back two three four hundred years to where uh just to give our listeners a quick little intro to where we found radium in Bohemia. Yes, um, so radium had, I, what I love doing the most is when I talk about this book is just quickly, briefly talking 400 years, lots <laughs> of scientific achievements, uh, revolution in science, and I'll, I'll just sort of skim all over it and just yeah. go, oh, you got things. Give me the elevator pitch of where we, <laughs> of this three, 400 year discovery and timeline. <laughs> okay, ready? I'm going for it now. So it all comes down to something that is called pitch blend, and this is a black mineral. It has another name, uh, which gives an indication of how valuable it was. It's called ore rubber. And it's found in mines when the good stuff, the stuff that they're looking for has run out. So if you've got a silver mine, you want the silver. You don't want this black ore rubber that has is completely worthless. So um, when you get to the to the ore rubber, you just dig it out, shove it to the side, maybe use it in the foundations of the of the homes and the, the buildings in, in, in this particular town uh, in Bohemia, which is now called Yakimov, and it's in the Czech Republic. So yeah, the whole town there is is being uh, the foundations are being used. Uh, this pitch blend is being used uh, to build the town. So yeah, it doesn't have much use, but then um, they discovered that there's uranium in pitch blend and uranium does have a use. Uranium um, can be used to color glass and can be color, uh, color pottery as well. So then this pitch blend has a little bit of use, but once the uranium has been extracted and used for the, um, for the coloring of glass, it goes back onto the rubbish dump. Now, again, we're going to fast forward about 60 years here, um, and uh, Wilhelm Röntgen has discovered X-rays, and we are in 1896 now. Now, X-rays are generated, uh, rays that are invisible to the human eye. We're all quite familiar with X-rays, but it was, it was a very exciting uh, discovery. Um, and other scientists wanted to find out whether other substances gave off X-rays, whether they existed in nature. So again, completely just simplifying things. <laughs> uh, Henri Becquerel, a French scientist, discovered a, a phenomenon that was came to be known as radioactivity, and Marie Curie actually um, named it. And this is the idea that some, some substances, some elements give off invisible rays naturally. So Henri Becquerel does that, and then Marie Curie continues on his research, and she goes back, to, I mean, she's looking at lots of different elements, uh, lots of different minerals and elements, but she, she gets her hands on some of this pitch blend, you know, this, this rubbish that, starts, that was chucked away centuries earlier, and she's got her hands on some pitch blend. 
Now they know that the uranium content in it is radioactive, but she discovers that there's more radioactivity than can be accounted for by the presence of uranium. So she knows that there's something else in there. So again, four years worth of really hard scientific research glossed over, she then discovers two new elements. You know, as you do. <laughs> it's important to remember she's a PhD student at this point. You know, she is not the Marie Curie we think of today. She is a young, hardworking scientist who discovers two new elements. And not only are they new elements, and this is radium and polonium, they are radioactive. They emit a radiation. And it's a stunning discovery. Like I said, it didn't get too much interest outside of the science world, but within the scientific community, it was quite a quite a discovery. I, and then after that, uh, so yeah, it was, I want to say it was surprising, but not surprising that people outside the science community weren't talking about it or interested in it. When we think about those things now, I think it's also partly a, a like communication thing. Information is so widely available to us now that people all over the world can find out that something happened um, within hours, minutes maybe. Um, but as she made this discovery and figured it out and had this news to share, it could only really be shared with people that were fairly close to her. Um, but yeah, then, so, sorry, as I say, it mostly is coming into journals and the scientific yeah. periodicals, which are being shared around amongst the community, but it really needs to go into the mainstream before the public because unless you have access to the proceedings of the French Academy, <laughs> um, which most people wouldn't have done, again, you're not going to see it. And journalists are looking at these proceedings. They are looking at the scientific uh, discoveries, but it didn't really, there was nothing, radium didn't really do anything. It wasn't like x-rays. X-rays, when they were discovered, had immediate um, uh, you could tell immediately that they were going to be useful because they helped you see inside the human body. So definitely diagnostically, they are going to be helpful because you can see broken bones, you can see bullets. Radium salts, they glowed, they're quite pretty, but they didn't have any usefulness uh, straight away. And, and, and science, that, that crossover between science and consumerism is about usefulness and applications and people working out that they can make money out of things, really. And before we get to people trying to make money off of radium and all the things that it could or could not do, um, let's talk about radiomania, which after that sort of, that small period of time after Marie Curie had, the word had gotten out and people started talking about it a little bit more. There's a lot of examples in the book that are really fun, like a really fun timeline of here are things that people tried to do with radium to make it exciting. Um, and a little bit of how that also didn't work. One of my one of my favorites was that when it was brought to uh, the American History Museum in New York, there were quotes from people who were like, this is it. I, I thought that it was gonna be bright, the room was gonna be bright green and, the, there was going to be sparks and light and glitter and all these things. And all I can see is this little tiny vial of salt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the, 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 the idea that, that it's that radium salts glow, or the reality that radium salts glow was widely reported on. Now, 
unfortunately it only glows in the sense of a very very sheer a small shimmer so it's just visible um, enough in the dark to be able to see now that becomes useful later with uh, glow in the dark watches but at the time it's it's not people hadn't worked out how to sort of um, make glow-in-the-dark paint using iridium salt. So the early exhibitions were just showing off a couple of grains of radium chloride. So it's just, when you went, when that, that person went to the Museum of Natural History in New York, they would have seen a couple of grains of salt, table salt. I think they're slightly <laughs> grayish actually and when it exposes to air. So it would just be like salt. Now, unless the entire room was darkened, um, you wouldn't be able to see anything. And there is sort of that kind of disappointment around radium at first for the people who have seen it, it there's a disappointment. It's an old flannel, it's boring, there's, it doesn't do anything. Um, but people were expecting it to because really some of the first uses of, radiums, uh, of radium as a concept was in fashion and fireworks, in fact. So uh, radium becomes a word for a type of material and a color very early on. The type of material is a satiny type material, as far as I can tell, and it's called radium, not because it was indicating that it had radium in it, but that it had a subtle sheen to it, a little shimmer. The color radium, um, I've seen the color radium in, in material being white or purple or red, that doesn't matter, but again, it's the iridescence of the material. And again, these, this is used using the word radium to signify an advancement in technology in, in, in fashion. People are making different types of materials using innovative techniques, and they want to signal that to their customers. So they call it radium, because radium, whilst isn't very exciting, it, everyone knows that it is cutting edge science. And that's the, there's a sort of duality about radium always. It can be boring but exciting at the same time. People understand it in different ways. And radium as a concept is really hard to unpick what people are thinking about it. Because again, right from the beginning, people knew that it was dangerous. So maybe it has like a little uh, you know, sexy element of danger to it as well, because Marie Curie and Pierre Curie were reporting that it glowed in the dark, but they were also reporting that it burnt your skin. And there's tales of people putting vials of radium salts in their pocket in Paris, traveling to London. And by the time they get there, it's burnt through the fabric and actually burnt into their skin. So people knew that it was causing harm, but that was explained away as actually being quite beneficial uh, medically. So again, this, this duality of danger of, um, but a hope for curing uh, cancer, they, they said that, they felt fairly early that uh, the, the burning properties could burn off tumours. So it's positiveness from destruction and uh, radium and radioactivity always has that duality. And it's a fascinating, uh, it's fascinating to start thinking about how people would have um, experienced radium um, right in these early points. And I do, I do want to talk about the paint, especially with Piff Paff Poof. Because that was such a, uh, you, the way that you, I, I imagined the entire thing happening with how you wrote it too, that the, so Piff Paff Poof was a musical production and at a certain point uh, the stage was plunged into darkness 
and the set had been decorated and painted with a radium salt infused paint and the costumes also had this paint infused into them. And all of a sudden this dance musical number happened with all of these glowing performers. And I can imagine that that would have been the most exciting thing to see at a time like that. Yeah, and I think it would have been a very immersive experience as well. Um, the, the piece of music is called the Radium Dance, and it was written specifically for this play and for the, the performers. And the performers uh, were eight teenage, teenage girls who were a vaudeville act, um, originally from London, who'd been uh, brought over to the US um, pretty much to perform this. Their style of dancing um, is a synchronized form of dancing, but it was said to imitate horse movements. So it's uh, sort of, I don't know, I'm glad no one can see me doing a little <laughs> movement here. But, yeah, little horsey things, although I, I do look more like a squirrel actually, but it's horsey movements to this song that is plinkety plonkety. And you can go onto YouTube and put in the radium dance and you can hear it. And it's sort of a up-tempo, early jazzy, plinkety plonkety uh, music and the girls, doing their synchronized dancing they were wearing their glow-in-the-dark costumes and it would have been really exciting the play itself wasn't very good from from reading the script and some of the reviews it, it wasn't very interesting people went for this final act they went for the radium dance and it must have been successful it had two big runs on broadway and then it went it went national it toured all around the us and the the pony ballet the 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 girls um became some of the highest paid uh acts in in US theater at the time they were earning like $20,000 a year they they liberated themselves from their management because they were so successful um and it gave them power to to do that and uh and again that's down to the radium that's down to uh this idea of glow in the dark and I find it that really fascinating too because it does change it's changing people's lives yeah. in lots of different ways and then with that with the the excitement and the the radio radio mania and all of uh these exciting things people like you mentioned before started to slowly think about how it could be capitalized on how they could use it to help people how it could be used medically um because like you said the first thing was it really was talked about as becoming a cure to cancer um and other ways to incorporated into healing properties and how people could use it to help themselves and so we get a lot of different things again we're talking about hundreds of years of <laughs> of history here that we're boiling down but we talked about uh radium spas which are still around and people are still doing water cures we've mentioned people drinking solutions um and people holding it up to their skin and burning off different things. So if you want to just give us a few little examples of uh, how this kind of boom started. Yeah, I mean, there's, so Pierre Curie, skin gets burnt from carrying, from carrying radium salts. And he goes to a, a doctor he knows at, a, hosp at his, a, a hospital in Paris and says, this has happened, how can we use this medically? Now they go back to the idea of x-rays, which had only been discovered a few years earlier. Radium salts couldn't be used diagnostically in the same way, you couldn't see inside the human body with them. But one of the things about x-rays was that 
soon as they were started to be used uh, diagnostically, it was discovered that they burnt the skin of the experimenters. And that was in the sort of principle of like cures like, hormosis. Um, it was thought that if, if x-rays could, and, and radium in turn, if it could uh, damage healthy skin, it would definitely be beneficial to unhealthy skin. So you could definitely burn off uh, uh, birthmarks or skin disorders or, or tumours as well. So radium starts becoming part of that. So radium starts being used to burn off things. Okay. <laughs> and and, and that, that develops in hospitals um, and it's very, very serious, difficult science. And obviously we still do use sources of radiation in cancer treatments today. Now, there's another therapy that rises up at the same time, which is called mild radium therapy. And mild radium therapy is really based on um, one of the disintegration products of radium, because that is what radioactivity is. It's when an element changes into another element. Now, radium does lots of different changes, but it changes into radon, which is a gas. So people started using radon gas to inhale, and that was felt to be beneficial for your lungs. Um, it was also discovered that radium could be found naturally in water. So if you had a uranium mine and you had a source of water, for instance, the water trickling into and through the, the mine would turn that water radioactive. Now, the place where Marie Curie had her um, source of pitch blend, um, which I mentioned earlier, which is a place now known as Yakimov in the Czech Republic, they had a uranium mine and they had it filled with water. So in 1909, they set up, a, the townspeople set up a, a, a treatment um, place. And they didn't, they didn't know, it flooded much earlier, right? And they, yeah. and they thought, oh, well, it's, it's just flooded. And then once they realized that the uranium and radon properties would seep into the water, they figured yeah. out a way to use it. Well, it's the same thing with the, with just discarding pitch blend. Mining is very, very, um, well, it's a cutthroat business, you know. <laughs> uh, I think it was about 1864, one of the shafts, the mining shafts in Yakimov uh, flooded, so they just sealed it off and moved on. There's no time to mess when it comes to mining. You just keep looking for the thing that you're looking for and move on when it's not there anymore. So they had... It was only about 1906 when they were like, oh, we've got all of this water in the mine. What should we do with it? So the, um, the town there is still, it's still there. There's Yakimov has still got 12, uh, I think it's about 12 hotels now. And people specifically go for this radon treatment. And it, you know, like I said, it goes back to 1909. And um, so they set up this treatment area. Then lots of other places cottoned onto the fact that it was a very popular treatment. All that work about curing cancer in hospitals meant that people were really interested in the mild radium therapy because you couldn't get your hands on some radium salts and treat yourself, but you could go to a spa town. So there's spa towns all over um, uh, Central Europe, there's spa towns in Britain, there's spa towns in the US, all growing up with this idea. Now there's also products that you can take home in these spa towns. So you can go to, um, there's a town in, uh, in England called Buxton um, and they sold their, their, their radium water, but they also sold the water that you could take home in little bottles as well. And you could go buy it in Harrods and, and big, uh, big shops in the UK. It also shipped around the world. And again, Buxton mineral water is still a big product these days. It's one of the most successful brands of mineral water but in the 20s and 30s their advertising said uh, come buy our radioactive water they don't <laughs> say that anymore but it, it was at the time 
So you've got Spartans offering creams and potions, um, anything that people could, could take home. And they're also available in shops. But then you've got companies that were nothing to do with the Spartans also offering these things. So the idea that you could go and buy some radium water that someone had made radioactive in a factory was a very popular thing. So you didn't have to go to a town. You could just go to your local shop and buy some water. Um, and there's tons of products, absolutely tons of products like that. There's also products where you can make the water radioactive yourself at home. So there's lots of uh, jars that are made from, from radium or uranium ore. And the idea is that you just, uh, at night, you fill up the jar with water. And in the morning, it's, it's radioactive and you can take a glass and wake, start your day with some radioactive water. And again, there's there's... I don't know, I think I've seen about 50 different types of these products that were widely available uh, and people were making a lot of money from them. They were selling huge amounts. The idea that you could make your water radioactive and that would be beneficial for your health was just massive. And and that that trend of people, essentially salespeople, some, some scientists, some doctors, some not, uh, also, in our story kind of had its own boom. Uh, and some of them, there are too many interesting stories. They were, I think my favorite chapters in the book because they were just, they were fascinating. And to see the the parallels to our, our sort of current uh, climate slash, um, like world of people just trying to sell people things um, and trying to figure out and understand their motivations and uh, and how they could come up with something like this. There are a few examples, but I think that I want to talk about radio sulfo brew. Um, specifically, yeah. <laughs> the specifically stage two of this treatment plan. Um, do you want to do you want to give us a little background on Philip Shish Jr.? Yeah, I'm just such a um, funny <laughs> to remind myself because this is such a good story, and I, an, I know I won't say it. <laughs> it's an incredible story. Yeah, so so I, in in a in a world where there's lots of these incredible products um, <laughs> with really bizarre, um, I did one of my favorites is the O Radium Hat Pad, which is mm -hmm. a a pad that you put on your head and then put your hat up over it and and the idea is that it stimulates your hair all day long when you're wearing your hat <laughs> in a world where that is something uh the radio sulfo brew is is something else i think <laughs> so it's a uh, they very um so it's philip shutch shutch junior philip Philip Jr. Now he said he was a chemist and a, a self-proclaimed so, uh, cancer specialist from Colorado. Um, now he has a career in mining and a sort of it was sort of a mineral, mineralogist, um, and he had um, worked in Europe. So he had worked in a town very close to uh, Yakimov uh, in, in in what was then Bohemia and is now the Czech Republic. And um, so he was based in in Denver, Colorado, and he set up the Radio Sulfo Company. Um, and so he painted two remedies for certain named diseases. So, but, I mean, it was 
these products are pretty much claiming that you can cure absolutely anything. <laughs> yeah, so he's saying that it could cure cancer. Um, and the treatment plan is about $25 per month. And it was a three-stage treatment plan. <laughs> so the, and it's the first and the second, the first and third of these are pretty standard. So um, you could apply your radiosulfo solution to the skin, um, which was just sort of said to draw out toxins. Um, and the third stage was uh, suggested that you could drink a small glass of it. Um, and again, that's that's the idea then is it's going to cleanse your inside. So it's going to cleanse your bowels. <laughs> yeah, this is... This, I, yeah, I laugh about this because it's really serious. It's well, and I love that you that you wrote it that way because I I was like stage one, stage three, okay, and then stage two is where it gets really weird. <laughs> it does, and I'm going to read from it because I, I again won't be able to say. Yeah. It. <laughs> so stage two is mixing very important five ounces of pure glycerine with one pound of Limburger cheese. Now, I've been reliably informed that Limburger cheese is a is a bacterial rich cheese that's known for stinking. It's stinky cheese, essentially. So you've got a mixture of glycerine and cheese. So then you make this mix, obviously holding your nose, and then you apply that to the skin with a with a piece of cloth over it. Again, this is designed to draw out the toxins. So <laughs> as I said, uh, this cheesy mess was to be renewed every 12 hours for optimal benefits. And it, the theory about how this worked was that because germs flee before the fragrance of Limburger cheese. So the cheese is so stinky um, that it's going to actually get rid of germs. And it's, it's the germs here that are thought to cause cancer. So if you draw out the germs using radium or cheese... cheese. <laughs> um, your diseases are guaranteed to be cured um, and but the company does caution that nobody with a weak constitution should use it because it, the the Limburger cheese is um, too powerful a magnet and the quote is a person must be robust and healthy aside from the cancer to stand the powerful drawing of Limburger cheese prepared as described um, yeah I mean that's a I remember first discovering that, and it was it was really early on in the research for the. For, there wasn't even a book at the time. It was um, I was working on a on a PhD on the topic. Didn't complete the PhD. Did write the book instead. <laughs> the PhD people didn't like my Limburger cheese stories. <laughs> How I wanted to get weird with this book with this project, and it, yeah, book was better than. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, again, you know. What on earth are people thinking here? Cheese? Um, yes. I mean, but this was a big product. It, it, he made quite a lot of money. Um, he, his, he, it also gets a bit more weird again um, when uh, uh, Philip Sh Sh Jr. dies in mysterious circumstances later. And there, there are so many twists to this story. I think maybe we should, I think we should not ruin the ending for people so that they can read the ending to that story on their own but it was just it I think it's maybe three pages in the book like this little small section but every the end of every paragraph was just another plot twist <laughs> that I did not see coming and and I think I want to lead that have that be sort of our lead into to the end of our conversation and how you end the book as well which is that you really wanted to to kind of give a little bit more context to 
the history of the story of this element and the the time that people were living in and how they were using it and what their motivations might have been because we read a story like that and we just think this guy was a crook and a fraud and that he was trying to make a dollar um and we and we have a lot of examples of that now um in society today where people are trying to monetize on anything they can with and i think maybe our general assumption is to off the bat say that people are not trying to help people and they're just trying to make money um but tell me a little bit about what you what you found in these stories of all these people because i'm sure there are plenty that you didn't get to include but some more examples that you found as well um of the people who were making these products and trying to monetize off of this new element and what your what your research told you about them that may have been lost in history I mean, that is, that question was the whole central element of, of the project for me. It was the, the temptation, especially when you look back at, uh, at these weird and wonderful uses of products in history, is to think that everyone who sold them were quacks and they were just after the money. And the idea that everyone who used them were just stupid. You know, we would never do that these days, would we? We're much more cleverer than our grandparents. Because um, you know this is this is the twenties and thirties. This isn't huge many generations um, ago. So I wanted to start thinking about the nuances behind why people would do it. And yeah, there were absolute crooks. Totally. Um, there's a product called Radol, um, which um, was claimed to be radium infused water, but when it was tested, hadn't been near any radium at all. That that was someone really seriously um, defrauding people. Um, other products, the radiosulfide brew, it's tempting to think that people really genuinely believed in the product they were selling. Um, there's another product called Radithor, which was one of the only um, uh, known products that was absolutely genuinely, genuinely known to have killed someone. This is a bit later, this is 1932. But the, the guy who made it, and he made an absolute fortune, William J. Bailey, he genuinely believed, as far as I can see in the product, he, until his dying day, defended his use of radium. And there's quite a few other people that really basically live and breathe radium. They, they actually, or die and breathe, or die and emit radioactivity. <laughs> But they genuinely believed in it. Um, I don't know whether they were doing it just because they knew they could make money. Um, that aspect is lost to us. But, you know, I have to think that if someone was selling the same type of product for 30 years, I think they do believe it. And if, especially if they're taking the product themselves. So it's this nuance that I really wanted to get behind. Um, and it is the tales in the story that um, I'm most proud of is that I do weave in real people's lives um, as far as we can and can, can find them, because this isn't hugely well documented, these people. Um, so as far as I could, I was trying to bring in real people with real motivations that wasn't just black and white quacks and stupid people. It was, you know, humanity in all of its uh, weirdness. And um, I mean, some people just some people are just beyond help they are just horrible people who will do say anything and do anything for money we know that we can see that but some people genuinely believed in this and actually really wanted to help and I wanted to pull out this thing as well because the scientists 
and the people working in hospitals, our temptation uh, for those is to say, well, they are martyrs if they were harmed by it. They were trying for the, the greater good. Not all of them were, though, and not yeah. all of the people that we want, we want to put in the box as quacks were being dishonest. There's just these... It's messy, isn't it? Humanity yeah. is messy. Lots of people have lots of different motivations, but I really wanted to try and get at some of them because as far as I could see, the history of radium through these products had always been told in a in sort of manner that was, oh, people are just horrible. And I, I know that's not, I know that's not true. I know that everyone isn't a horrible person. <laughs> yeah. And and you, especially with an, with an element that had that duality that you said was both exciting and potentially harmful um you you get a little bit of that uh mad scientist narrative um but to see all those really fun ways that it was used in musicals and fireworks and treasure hunts and <laughs> all of these fun examples of how it was used to excite people and have a a fun positive exciting impact on society at that time compared to the narrative we have of it now was such a fun history to read. And I am so excited for our listeners and our shoppers at Skylight to pick up their very own copy off the shelf. Thank you, Lucy, so much for sharing with us and talking to me about Half-Lives and Radium today. You can order your very own copy of Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>